0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great movies, so many great conversations, but it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you, and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we have covered. From Season 1 up through our current season
1: for part of season eight we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968
0: we talked about 2001 and 2010 for our odyssey series both adapted from arthur C. Clarke's novels man the second one was so much better than the first right
1: don't you even get me started <sighs> need i bring up under the cherry moon again
0: Yes! Also, so
1: much better! <laughs> wait, wait, no! That's not what I... Uh,
0: <laughs> Planet of the Apes
1: kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait,
0: wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard?
1: They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books!
0: I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die
1: Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <sighs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel.
0: And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver.
1: We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight.
0: We haven't talked about Gaslight.
1: Stop gaslighting me. <laughs> Dive deeper into these books
0: and more adapted films at thenextreelcom slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast.
1: Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, Sinatra shows us what it's like to be with the cops in this hard-boiled crime thriller, The Detective. My God. I think I'm going to be sick. No, you're not. You're going to tense your muscles and get out the notebook. Male, Caucasian, lying nude on the floor. Left side of skull crushed. Cuts
1: on face and chest. Fingers shredded. Roderick Thorpe's number one bestseller. A literary guild selection. Now, an adult powerhouse on the screen.
0: Your Joe Leland, detective, prowling a city sick with violence.
1: Full of junkies, prostitutes, and perverts.
0: Um okay, Andy, before we dig in to the movie itself, let's do just a very brief
1: series recap. What are we doing? All right, so we are doing our 1968 crime series um, because of this overarching celebration of 50th anniversaries that we're doing through the second half of 2018. And we thought it'd be fun to do a crime series, and we put up a list of crime films for all of our Patreon listeners to vote on. This was one of the four that was selected and I don't know if people knew anything about it or if they just knew that, hey, it's Sinatra, that'd be an interesting one to to try out. Or because we talked about Die Hard on the show and we referenced the fact that this was, in fact, based on the book that was the, I guess you could say, the book that came out before um, the book that Die Hard was based on. And uh, maybe that's why people voted on it. I don't know. But this was one of the four that was picked. You know, I'll take it because I really enjoyed this movie, Andy. I knew nothing about it, and was so thrilled <laughs> with what it was because it was so not expected and yeah. I think looking at the series recap and just and just you know getting a sense of the movies that that we picked and kind of the context and how they fit in is it is it worth looking at this film fifty years later, as opposed to Coogan's Bluff, for example? Absolutely, this was a really interesting film that looked at how uh, homosexuality was viewed back uh, in in society fifty years ago, and how the police dealt with it, how society dealt with it, and it was it's it's a film that is worth revisiting.
0: Well, you, they, not just homosexuality, but use of force, um, uh, police brutality, um, you, the the way uh, you know investigations, dirty investigations, clean investigations. What does it look like to have a, a police officer that is you know trying to be clean in an environment that is uh, you know so obviously dirty? Um, it, it is dealing with a lot of issues like targets that are still resonant today. We are still having these conversations. Whatever we are talking about um, you know whatever whatever the countercase is we're still talking about all of these things today in this movie and i cannot believe that i a i had never seen this movie and b Frank Sinatra is the vessel for the kind of conversations that are are
1: going on in this movie. I can't believe it. I knew that Sinatra had been in good movies. I mean, we talked about Ocean's Eleven on this on this show, which I, I think fairly ranked at the bottom of the list of our Ocean's films. It just right. wasn't a great uh, or fun experience Um, But I know that he had been in um, From Here to Eternity and won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his performance there. Even if people said that it was because of his connections and all that sort of thing, I thought he did a great job in that film. And I think he has has shown in other projects that he can be a great actor. It's just I don't think people, maybe at least our generation, uh, really ever thought of him that way. Because in my head, he was so um tied directly to the rat pack and everything that they had done and i just didn't ever think of him as an actor who was in films like this no absolutely not and uh
0: films like this that deal not just with you know all the cops and crime stuff but relationships and sex and um you know what it what it means to have uh you know and and divorce right in the 60s divorce you know tackling all those sort of relationship, uh, moral relationship issues that that you know, we've we've seen challenged so much since then. But digging into the film a little bit, I, I have to say not only all of the cultural issues and the, the topical stuff going on in this
1: movie, but the film looks amazing. It was a remarkable difference going from targets, which had a great indie look that still was doing some interesting things with the camera work. To Coogan's Bluff, which was about as bland as and flat as you could get, to uh to this film, which really surprised me consistently from the opening shot to the flashbacks to the conversations within the flashbacks between uh Sinatra's character and Lee Remick's character, Joe and Karen. To just uh, just a lot of interesting setups of the camera and positioning all the way through, it was a beautiful film with a beautiful use of lighting and camera position and editing. I was just completely impressed constantly as I watched this movie.
0: I, I want to get your thoughts on the flashbacks themselves because the flashbacks, as I'm watching them, my, the feeling I'm getting is wow, this is a movie that is it it, it almost exists in flashback. Did you get that feeling? Well, (laughs) there's a lot of
1: flashback. There's two flashbacks and they're lengthy flashbacks. The first one is 14 minutes and the second one's 10 minutes. Yeah, they are. They make up basically a quarter of the film when you add them up. Uh, It was an interesting structure. And apparently the book is rather meandering um, the way that it kind of moves through Joe's life and everything. And so I guess to that extent, um, maybe Abby Mann, who wrote the script, was Trying to kind of use that a little bit, the way that that he threw these flashbacks in. I liked the flashbacks. I liked what they brought to the story, and namely the relationship between Joe and Karen, which I, I really did enjoy that relationship a lot. and the, And it was a very complex adult relationship, and I loved that about it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a very interesting structure to go into these flashbacks. And then within these flashbacks, and, and I think outside of the flashbacks too, every time, almost every time, Joe and Karen are having a conversation, it jumps into this, this uh new way of of viewing the the conversation where each of them is talking directly into the lens and initially it was off-putting because it just all of a sudden like why are they looking right at me all of a sudden (laughs) that
0: was very strange it it was probing especially lee uh, remick i mean i I, she was she was in my soul and that was okay i was totally okay with the worst yeah (laughs) will this flashback Please never end. Please (laughs)
1: just keep smiling at me, Lee. No, it was, it was, um, it was a really fascinating way to do that. And I don't know if it worked a hundred percent for me, it was a little off putting and peculiar. But I will say, I was completely impressed that Gordon Douglas tried something unique with this film and within the language of the film that made it stand out for me.
0: But and I want to say about their relationship specifically. I really enjoyed watching this movie. I have not read the book, but it, obviously we talked about Die Hard, and uh, I had had just reread the book, Nothing Lasts Forever, uh, that that was based on, which came out in nineteen seventy nine. Right, and this this book, the detective came out in sixty six. Uh, I, I found it really rewarding to go back in time and see their relationship form and fall apart. Uh, that was ultimately continued in, in Nothing Lasts Forever. I don't know if any of the books that he had written in between The Detective and Nothing Lasts Forever are, are books about Joe, uh, but I, I really enjoyed the, uh, the sort of bookend that we got on, on this one, and the way they use the flashbacks to, to tell the story of their relationship coming together uh, while we watch present day, um, you know, the, the very strange dynamic that it had sort of evolved into.
1: Yeah, I think both of the books obviously went through a, a a different adaptation process that resulted in different films. I I think from what I read, this film is closer to the book, although still quite a number of differences. I think that that Joe and Colin McIver, who uh, is kind of the, our principal character of the, you know, he's investigating his suicide or was it a murder in the second half. Um they were actually um uh in the same army unit and um i, I think there's there's more more involving like uh, his father or more you know his father was really big and and i think he was i mean i think he was a little younger at least written younger or maybe it's just that sinatra is just a little might have been a little too old to be playing it um but still uh i i think the story Largely, is a lot more similar between the book and this film that uh, than Die Hard was with its film.
0: Well, and Die Hard, uh, you know, Nothing Lasts Forever uh, focuses not centrally on the wife like Die Hard the movie did, right? You know, we get a little bit of Karen, but it's the the object of his heroism is his daughter, right? In Nothing Lasts Forever, so uh, we don't get quite as much, but y- you kind of understand more clearly why. Uh, You know, as the emotional connection comes from the detective. And uh, to clarify, uh, this is Nothing Lasts Forever is the direct sequel to The Detective. And uh, no, there weren't any Joe Leland books in between our detective Joe Leland
1: and John McClain. But uh, but Joe, but I mean, he was Joe Leland in the book, right?
0: But I yes, he was Joe Leland in the book. I'm, what do you think about the when, when you take the names away? Let's just look at the characters as as Sinatra portrays this character of this particular detective compared to how Bruce Willis portrays the character in Die Hard. Uh, w- w- knowing now that those are the same are, are you know, the DNA of those guys are supposed to be the same guy.
1: Uh, What's your sense? Did they did they do a pretty good job? Well, I think he's got the same um, sense of uh, I don't want to say uh, isolation within the department, but he certainly um, kind of acts as uh, a man alone like he's he's doing his thing. And I mean, he, he's he got some great lines in this movie, like, you know, hey, you know, live and let live, or it's not my bag or whatever, yeah. um, where everybody, you know, he's very much like, you know, everybody's got their thing, I'm just trying to deal with mine. And I loved that attitude. And I could see a little bit of that spilling over into the, the John McClane character. And just the way that he had his relationship, it was a little abrasive with his superiors, uh, you know, because he was trying to get things done. And if he had to do it his way, then he would and uh obviously the the big difference is you know he's turning in his badge here at the end which yeah obviously isn't going to work if we're calling Die Hard the sequel to this because he's back in the force
0: yeah and and I don't think Die Hard would have taken on a a topic like this one right i i think that in in the act of modernizing the a Joe Leland story uh, but they you know ended up sanitizing a bit of it uh, culturally uh, but I'll tell you when I think about that that conversation on the roof the the uh, Johnmclean uh Hans Gruber conversation on the roof, I could see Sinatra pulling that off I could see that same kind of bravado I could see that same sort of um you know staring danger in the eye and play in the part um, character and and I find that uh really satisfying.
1: Well, I can't remember what the cuz it's not uh there's a little bit of a plot difference in Nothing lasts Forever. The detective, I feel, is actually real timely with what's going on in society. Right. Uh, in 1966 and then in the film 1968 as far as just the way that uh you know, homosexuality and uh just the rise of different Uh, cultures and different people. It's really kind of coming up. You know, we've got hippies, we've got uh, black rights movements, we've got, uh, you know, just all sorts of like students protesting and, and uh, homosexuals, you know, we've got the Stonewall riots a year after this film comes out. Um, It's a very divisive time within the country. And I think the book is taking a really interesting look at kind of everything that's happening Um, through a policeman's eyes, a detective's eyes. And I find that very interesting. And I I don't know if, uh, do you recall if Nothing Lasts Forever is doing any of that for... What would be seventy nine, like you know, gas crisis things happening and
0: well, in, very, very much, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of those issues because you know it's it's not the Nakatomi Plaza, it's not right, this big right. tech company, it's an oil company. He's stuck in in a in an oil corporation headquarters, and so you know it very much deals with, um, you know, the issues of the day, uh, you know, dealing with oil and refining and and the company that you know is ending up. In the perspective of the novel, ending up poisoning, um, you know, an an economy as a result of their work. Um, So. Right. So it's still kind of the the
1: terrorists are trying to. Yeah. Kind of. It's not so much stealing money, but it is. Exactly. uh, Yeah. It was German. German terrorists, I think, that were.
0: Uh, yeah. In there, so and it's interesting. You you mentioned uh, some some great one-liners, and there are some great one-liners. One of my favorites, I'd like your opinion on, is uh, is this one Sinatra? I think it's in the first five minutes of the movie. Um, uh, you're gonna you're gonna f- uh, flex your muscles and and take notes. Uh, penis has been cut off and is lying on the floor. Did you see that coming? <laughs> no,
1: yeah, and then he later says. Oh, I can't remember. It's about like, you know, get it wrapped up before somebody kicks it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly. I was not seeing any. Th- it was really, that, can you imagine was that like, in wow. Ocean's
0: Eleven? <laughs> <laughs> Dino, your penis has been cut off. It's lying on the floor. I can't work that in naturally.
1: <laughs> the whole the penis amputation, like really, I was like, wow, this film is not, not pulling any punches. Nope. We're just <laughs> going right into it here. <laughs> I was really impressed that they actually did all of that and, and they treated it seriously. It wasn't anything that they were making fun of. And I was like, I, I was just kind of surprised. And I, I mean, I think the first thing that came to mind was like, I'm really, I'm really excited to see all of this. And then I was like, well, I don't know if I, if that's the appropriate thing to say when we're talking about all of this, but still like Sinatra in this film that just really felt uh, really gritty. I was like that. I was just never expecting that walking into this movie,
0: which which leads us into a conversation about the the, uh, you know, the portrayal of the 1968 homosexuals. There were some things in here I didn't understand. Uh, and there okay. were some things that I was very, very impressed uh, with uh, the the things I didn't understand. At one point, they do a raid. And it is a raid on a it looks like a, a you know, a semi Tractor like a mo- it's like a moving lot. truck lot or something. Yes, it's like a mo- right, and they the police show up in a parade of police cars, and they're all there with their flashlights. It's the middle of the night, and they start opening semi trailers, and in the semi trailers, it's just full of men in the dark, totally dressed. It looks very, very strange. So they open these semi trucks, and you know, fifty guys will get out, and they're all shocked. It looks like they've been napping, and and I know that they weren't <laughs> napping. In my head, I know that they weren't napping. I think this. I, I think this particular sequence ran into uh, the limits of what they could actually portray on screen and what would have been going on in those trucks that they were trying to communicate. But my goodness, I've never heard of that. Does that? I, I've never heard of that sort of environment. Is that a thing that happens?
1: I, I don't know. But what I found interesting about that was it was something that I hadn't seen before. And I mean, again, going back to like you know, Stonewall riots in 1969, this is an era when homosexuality was still kind of thought of as a medical condition and they wanted to fix it. You know, there were probably gay bars, but they were probably very hidden. And I think that what this shows is people were desperate for places to connect. And yeah. if it meant that they were going into the backs of of box trucks um, to, to find some space, uh, I guess that's what they were doing. And I don't know if it – I'm assuming that it probably was something that happened since they're portraying it here. But I found it to be kind of shocking that that's what they had to stoop to um and and uh just i mean it, it really kind of just was like one of those eye opening things that also struck me as kind of how silly it all is but i think the silliness of it also is per, is because i i i think the film is doing a really interesting job of opening having this open conversation about uh homosexuality and uh, you know, how it was treated at the time but also i think there's um it's it's a good reference point for how hollywood and society viewed gay people yeah and they all look a little overly flamboyant and overly coiffed and it's it's you know it's that's kind of what the world of homosexuality was at the time and i think it's a little a little much um and i mean they go into a gay bar later or, or, or MacIver does and it's like this really pink place and really sparkly and like, nah, yeah, yeah, I don't know. If much. It's exactly right. Uh, d- definitely not too quite much. right. But hey, I applaud them for trying.
0: Well, I applaud them for trying and for muscling through a variety of positions on The perspective on homosexuality in this film, it was not black and white. You had uh, Sinatra playing this character that, you know, he was obviously sort of the heroic uh, ideological lead, but was clearly written as, you know, struggling with how to balance his his own perspectives, the perspectives of the police force, which was. Largely anti homosexuality uh, and the perspective of these women in his life. And, you know, we in this particular sequence, we are we, we get to see a little bit more meat uh, in the character of Detective Nestor, played by a young Robert Duvall, uh, who I honestly didn't expect to be the guy to to, you know, treat these men as he did in this lineup and um you know Sinatra has to slug him and i think that is a uh, that was a fantastic uh, opportunity for us to see you know how these these in this sequence how these men are struggling with their perspective on something that's really hard for them to to integrate into their own lives. Um, we get to see on the uh, you know on slightly other end of the spectrum get Jack Klugman who uh, is as detective Sean Stein who's uh, plays a little bit of a softer perspective and then uh, we get the what was the guy who's ends up using like the Nazis as role models for getting confessions. This is a very uh, broad uh, range yeah. of perspectives on this police force
1: yeah that was al freeman jr as robbie uh the rookie who comes yeah. in and then <laughs> of all of all people the rookie african-american who's using nazi techniques to uh you know stripping down his uh the the uh person that he's interrogating to get answers from him it was a little shocking to see that he would go to that level but i found it really interesting that these characters it was a real variety of them, and that's I think what I really liked about this police force. And it would have been nicer if maybe, uh, maybe in the world of the of the gay men, that there was a little more variety rather than just kind of all the flamboyant ones. But that being said, I it, it, when we get to the end and we see MacIver and he's like going down into that world, and because he's struggling with his own sexuality, and we see him, I was I was just floored that this film is dealing with this this man who this married man who's dealing with homosexuality and he's struggling with it inside of himself and he you can see that he's just hating himself but he's he's so drawn to it and i was just like this is really it was just amazing to see i i i loved how that whole thing played out joe was interrogating uh what was his
0: name the guy in the felix was that felix tony Masante, yeah that was an, an incredibly moving confession
1: I was uh floored by it. It really hit me. Uh I just found it um heartbreaking and powerful. The way that uh Sinatra as Joe dealt with it, the way that he kind of like held his hand to calm him down and kind of draw this con- confession from him um was amazing. Um I I do think that there were times I was like it it's a little operatic. It's pretty big the way that Felix is is delivering all this and and I kind of struggled with that, but I felt for me it ended up being right on the line, but uh, it might have danced across the line a little bit, but it never too much to the point where I, I didn't still find it to be a powerful performance.
0: I totally I agree with you, but this this scene for me was like... I, it was one of those jokes that was funny, and then you tell it again, and it's not funny, and then it's not funny like twenty five times, and then by the twenty fifth, sixth time, it's funny again. That was this scene for me. It was overkill, 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 too much, too much, too much. How is he gonna? Is sound gonna come out of the face as it's contorting up and down? And then it comes back around to me, and I just like toward the end of the sequence, I just really connected with his pain and the the. Performance that he was putting in. again. It felt as I I love that you say operatic. It felt like a stage performance. Uh, It felt like he and Sinatra were deeply connected uh, in that in that moment. That sequence was just made so much more powerful as a result of it. Even better, how conflicted Sinatra is written to be. After the sequence that he, you know, he is really struggling with whether or not uh, that was a coerced conviction and nobody else cares. Uh, You know, no one else on the force cares at all. I thought that was really special.
1: Yeah, it was. And it allows for. uh, Well, one, it brings us a horrifying electrocution scene that just was like awful to watch. Oh, yeah. And then uh, it, it it brings us back around at the end of the film as everything kind of comes together and all these puzzle pieces are put in place, and we see Joe reacting with the realities that uh, you know he put a guy, an innocent man, to death, um, and he acknowledges that it was largely to uh, to get a promotion, and it's just a, it's this moment for him that hits, and it's just kind of this the way that it hits him, I found really powerful and shocking.
0: Not to belabor the fantastically remic, but it, it, we we neglected to cover earlier that she her character sort of evolves as we get to know her to be a straight up nymphomaniac, and that is another thing I don't know that we I don't know that I would have expected. Maybe it's in the late sixties, leaning into the seventies. That's that's when these characters are starting to get written, but uh, and portrayed on screen, I should say. Uh, but I I didn't see that coming.
1: That was a surprise and an interesting element of her backstory that this was something that he had dealt with with her, that she could not stop herself from sleeping around. Um, it was a real surprise. But what I loved the most about that was the way that their relationship continued and the way that it still he still had connections to it, even though he could never see himself getting back together with her. Um, he still had that bond with her and they would still have conversations and he would come to her and she would come to him. I, I really was just, I, I found it to be a wonderfully portrayed adult relationship that was full of complexities and, and elements that, you know, you could totally see um, either way. Now,
0: it's interesting that, in fact, this movie where he is playing a gritty cop, uh, having an affair and a marriage with, um, you know, Karen with uh, the wonderful Lee Remick in this movie, that they may have been having an affair uh, during the production.
1: That is possible. It's very, very possible that that did happen. He was going through he ended his relationship with Mia Farrow because of this film uh i well partly because of this film and largely because of her film Rosemary's Baby in which she was the lead and uh that film was running long she was supposed to be in this film in right. a, as as uh, Mrs McIver, Norma uh that Jacqueline Bissett ended up playing um but it was uh Rosemary's Baby ran long and she And he's like, "No, you got to come work in this." And she's like, "No." And he served her divorce papers. He didn't say anything to her. He just had someone serve her divorce papers on the set, Rosemary's Baby, because you know there are times that he's cool, and there's times he's just you know all class. (laughs) That Mia, that Mia Farrow can really pick him. Oh my goodness! Yes, she can. So sorry that was that was below the belt. Time. I (laughs) I apologize for that. But yes, it is uh, apparently it is possible that uh, that he did end up having an affair with uh, with uh, Lee Remick on this film, and uh, interestingly, she uh, did end up divorcing her husband uh, Bill Colleran um, late nineteen sixty eight. So I don't know. I don't know the story. I don't know if he might have been part of the reason for that. So much drama. What do we know uh, about the good Gordon Douglas?
0: Uh, apparently, he was director in name only. <laughs> is, that, is that a fair, a Boy, fair
1: characterization? I mean, he's, he's definitely a director who's done a lot of projects. Uh, you know, I think he, on IMDb, he's got 99 directing projects listed. Uh, you know, he started out with the... Uh, uh, I, I think he actually started acting, but then uh, he did some uh, of the Our Gang Series and did some stuff with uh, Laurel and Hardy, and um, in the fifties he did the absolutely wonderful uh, Giant Ant movie, Them, that everybody should see because it's so great, brilliant. Uh, And then in the early sixties he did uh, the wonderful In Like Flint, and uh, but over the course of that he did direct Sinatra, um, I think, uh, four times and. Uh, From what it sounds like listening to the the people talk about it on the commentary, um, he really was kind of a director who let Sinatra steamroll all over him and did whatever Sinatra wanted. And I I don't know if a yes man is the appropriate term or just saying that that he just um, – kowtowed to him a little bit or just was like, yeah, sure. You know, I don't know if he was just really easygoing, but people say, I don't think they say it was to the point where Sinatra directed the movie, but I think when it came to Sinatra doing what Sinatra was doing, that Sinatra did whatever he wanted to do in the movie. It's just what Sinatra did. Yeah. Well, and he didn't do rehearsals. He, uh, you know, and, and it's funny cause there was a director who ran into him, um, years later and, and caught him, uh, Record, he went to a recording, like Sinatra ran into him on the street and invited him to, hey, I'm going to be recording this album. Come come listen. And he went and the director watched as Sinatra recorded songs over and over and over again, trying to get it absolutely perfect. And afterward, they went out for a drink or something and, and uh, the director was just like, man, I am so surprised that you did so many takes with every song because I could never get you to do that many takes. when we were making the movie. And, and Sinatra said, well, you know, there's never been a lonely man sitting in a bar at 2am who is, is putting on a movie. And that was kind of his viewpoint that, it, and I guess it goes to show that singing is really um, his love and what he saw as the important parts of his Life And I think acting wow. was just something that he enjoyed to do, but never saw it as, uh, never took it as seriously, even though I think he did deliver a great performance here.
0: Abby Mann, um, penned the screenplay here, I haven't, I, as I look at his credits, I, I honestly, I don't think I've seen anything else that Abby Mann had done, but Judgment at Nuremberg. What's your sense of, uh, of Abby Mann's structure of this thing?
1: Well, first, I, I think I'm largely like you. I, I've heard of Abby Man, but I don't think I had ever seen anything except Judgment at Nuremberg. I think that is hit, which um, was also based on his uh, his own story. Um, so, I, uh, I I can't get a good sense of the scope of of Man's career. But I he did a lot I, of
0: Kojak. Oh, did, did he do did a lot of do. Kojak? Yes,
1: indeed. But I do really like the way that the this, this script was, was structured. At first, it took me by surprise, I guess. Um, you know We've got this film that feels a little bifurcated, where you've got this first half of the story dealing with uh, catching the killer of this gay man, and then they catch him and they electrocute him. And then we go into the second half of the film, and there's a, this suicide at the, at the horse tracks, and uh, and then he's investigating that and it turns into this big, you know, political conspiracy and there's all sorts of stuff going on and who is Rainbow? And, and it, it's like, wow, this is I wasn't expecting it to be so split like this. And I, I, I was like, OK, well, I'll go with it because it still is intriguing. And then we get to that tape recording and I was like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting it to tie together like this. So it was it was a little it was a little it wasn't it was maybe not as separated as Targets is, which is completely two different stories that just happen to come crash together at the right. end. This one um, is really just you know the life of a police detective as he's investigating things that all happen to tie together and. And to that end, I actually really liked how it went. It, it it actually kind of reminded me a little more of like the LA Confidential type of structure.
0: Yeah, I I had that feeling too, and I you know I feel like LA Confidential is trying to do some very similar things, uh, trying trying to tell the same sorts of stories uh, about yeah. the police, the period of the police. We got a couple of other folks we want to talk about in the cast uh, before we move through it. uh, it, It's an amazing cast, and it's an amazing cast of the period, we should say, but uh, we have, in addition to Sinatra and Lee Remick, we have Ralph Meeker and Jack Klugman and Horace McMahon, and Lloyd Bachner, who is fascinating as Dr. Roberts, uh, and and I really love their repartee, particularly in the beginning, Uh, and it's really fun to see that his son Hart Bachner was in Die Hard, Uh, so you know.
1: I actually love that, and that's one of those things that I never would have known if I hadn't actually watched this film. Yeah. Um, And I'm just looking at at Hart Bachner, and he was Harry Ellis. And his face is super familiar, but I can't remember who. Oh, oh. Harry. Yeah. Yes. Bubby. Bubby, Hans. Bubby. I can give him to you. That is amazing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's brilliant. It's it's positively brilliant. Uh, so that was really wonderful. Um, we have uh, we've we've already mentioned uh, uh, Tony Masante as Felix and uh, Robert Duvall as Nestor. It was great to see him. Pat Henry as Mercedes, uh, but uh, Sugar Ray Robinson is the one that stood out to me as Kelly. Uh, I I guess I didn't have a sense that Sugar Ray uh, had done even as many um, film projects, TV projects as he had done, uh, but. Uh, but look at, lo and behold, he did.
1: It, and I think this was one of those things where he was buddies with Frank Sinatra and Sinatra had him come on over. Hey, come on and, and be this guy in the bar. And I think that's exactly yeah. what happened. And he shows up. Yeah. He was, he was there. Yeah. yeah.
0: Obviously, we, we can't talk about Jacqueline Bazette only as a stand in for Mia Farrow. <laughs> we can't. We, we, we have to do more than that.
1: Yes. So let's start with her wig. Oh, yes. I You know, it's funny that they went with this hairdo, which obviously Mia Farrow popularized at the time. And I, you know, I don't I didn't hear anybody saying that they went with this wig because Mia was going to be in the part. Um, but you kind of get that feeling for it um, when she shows up and that's her hairdo. And, and you know, this backstory, it's like, oh, interesting. I, but I liked her. I, I, I thought, I, I didn't think her uh, part was as strong as I wanted it to be, uh, com- especially considering some of the other elements that we had in the film. But I still enjoyed seeing her in the film. And this was, uh, you know, very uh, right around the time that she was, uh, I can't remember if it was right before this or right after this that uh, that she was doing Bullet. But it's like right around the same time because um, they both were 1968 films. And William Wyndham, uh, we didn't mention him earlier, but as yeah. her husband, I just liked, I really liked the, that internal struggle that he was really going through with this whole story and leading to committing murder over it. I, I really thought that was a powerful performance that he brought to the table here. And he was a very familiar face, too. Um I didn't look at his credits to see what oh, gosh. In. Oh, you know, he did. Oh, he was the president
0: and escaped from exactly. the planet. Of the that's Apes. right. That's, that's, <laughs> when we, we need to, to know that. Uh, and, and, you know, he was in uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird back in the day. We've uh, watched that a bunch around here. He was in Uncle Buck. Look at that. 253 credits. I mean, the guy uh, is, has a substantial career, not to mention a, um, a you know, a long running part on murder she wrote. He's Uncle Chuck in Sonic the Hedgehog, all 25 episodes. So if you're a big fan of that.
1: There it is. I think there, he's the boss uh, looking at the, uh, looking at the uh, advertising stuff in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. The one yeah. who we cut to at the very end of the credits <laughs> who's still sitting there.
0: <laughs> totally. He's George Wilson in Dennis the Menace. Mr. Wilson. Wow. Takes me back. Uh, camera.
1: Joseph Biroc. Again, uh, the way that they uh, worked with the camera in this film, just I was very excited. It, it felt uh, fresh, and that was something that I really missed in the last film, and I was just thrilled that we had here. And he also worked on Escape from the Planet of the Apes.
0: It all comes back to the apes, Andy. Everything you need to learn about the world can be found in Planet of the Apes.
1: <laughs> I firmly believe that. <laughs> uh,
0: this the, uh, film is, has been scored by one of the very famous J's.
1: Yes. One of the 10 J's. Jerry Goldsmith. uh, This is a soundtrack that I actually have had long before I ever watched the movie. Um, (laughs) It's a great score. It's got that just great, like the, the sax and just kind of the, it's very kind of that 60s, neo-noir vibe going on through it um it just i mean i i as soon as it kicks on with a fantastic first shot that's so disorienting um i was just like oh this is perfect this is great music for this movie
0: i totally agree could not agree more i think it's amazing i had not had it 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 so quickly becomes the soundtrack to my day you know i walk mysteriously out of my office I, I skulk darkly into the kitchen. Uh, you know, that's it's just what it feels like to me. It's just it's really fantastic. So
1: And then you have those flashbacks with the great Exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, what did I do in the bathroom five minutes ago? No, don't go there, don't go back there. You'll be stuck there for, half, stuck the there for half the movie.
0: <laughs> we need to talk clearly about all of the awards that I'm sure that this movie won during award season.
1: You know, it's 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 interesting. This is one of those films that was a popular movie, but I wonder if it's the subject matter or the genre that just didn't spark people to give it any nominations because it didn't have any. It had no nominations? It didn't have a single nomination. Again, remember, this was an era where there was not nearly as many awards as there are today, where you have awards for the most nonsensical things today. But back then, it was really a limited number of awards. So, uh, but looking at the Oscars, for example, I, it just my curiosity really struck me. Would there be any, any category that you would say, you know, I think I would nominate this for that category? Well. Like, would you say Frank Sinatra, throw him in for an Oscar nomination?
0: Okay, now wait a minute. So are we are we talking about just category or are we talking about that year? Are you going to test me on on this in a minute?
1: Yeah, I'm looking at the film's. Uh, and, and the the people that were nominated in for Oscars in 1968 films, and I just wanted to see if you you know where do we stand? Would we have put this in for a nomination, or are we good with what they went with?
0: Well, I don't know what what I don't know with what they went with what they went with. I'm going to okay. tell you. I'm
1: going to I'm going to tell you. So give me a category, and then we'll have I, that conversation. Uh, let's just say
0: I would put I would drop Frank Sinatra and his Best Actor. Let's say that.
1: So the winner. That year was Cliff Robertson and Charlie, which I haven't seen. So I can't. This is going to be a tricky category, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Peter O'Toole uh, was in The Lion in Winter. Ron Moody was in Oliver. Alan Bates was in The Fixer. And Alan Arkin was in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I've only seen The Lion in Winter and Oliver. Um, so I've seen The Lion in Winter and three. The Heart is The, and the,
0: the Lonely Hunter. Um, but uh, I would still say that Sinatra stands up to those.
1: I, I mean, yeah. I, I think that I, I would really now. I'm curious to see the other three performances just so I can uh, figure out who I'd cut because I would feel like I would want to throw Sinatra in here.
0: What about Lee Remick as uh, best actress or supporting? I don't know. I would I if would say Jacqueline
1: Bisset would be. Supporting. Yeah, if it's best actress, uh, Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. Catherine Hepburn in The Line in Winter. This was that year where it was a tie between those two. Yeah. Joanne Woodward and Rachel Rachel, which we'll be talking about later in the year. Vanessa Redgrave in Isadora and Pat- Patricia Neal in The Subject Was Roses. I haven't seen those three. No. Um, I wouldn't take out Hepburn or Streisand. No. Nope. Uh, so I'd have to figure out of Woodward, Redgrave, or Neal, who would I drop if I wanted Lee in. I don't know if I feel the need to throw Lee in, though. All right. So that's but- all right cinematography i would definitely throw it
0: i uh, was the next one i was gonna gonna throw your way so joseph b rock is uh, uh best cinematographer who else did we have up against that one lion in winter i assume uh
1: no no uh pascalino de for romeo and juliet which mm, we will be talking about later in the year yeah harry stradling jr or sorry senior for funny girl which we've talked about oswald morris for oliver daniel l fapp for ice station zebra and ernest laszlo for star I haven't seen *I Station Zebra* or *Star*. Um, of the three, I don't know. I'm trying to remember the cinematography in *Funny Girl*, and if it struck me as wow, I would definitely nominate that for cinematography. <laughs> *Romeo and Juliet*, yes, I would. I would probably leave that in there. Oliver, I, I I'm a little you, wishy-washy I think on. Watching *Funny Girl* again, you would you would
0: say that it deserves to be right where it is. It, we, it was. Um, it was solid. well. Some of it was, you know, easily and naturally proscenium. They do some fascinating things, you know, some fascinating choices around high angles and mirror shots and things that really develop your sense of kind of inner narcissism through camera. And I, I, I remember having a great time with that one.
1: Of those three, I would drop Oliver. Yeah. And throw this in instead. How, what about music? Ah, yes, good old Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, Let's see, best music, the Lion in Winter one. Jerry Goldsmith was already nominated for Planet of the Apes. Uh, Lalo Schifrin was nominated for The Fox, Alex North for The Shoes of the Fisherman, and Michelle Legrand for The Thomas Crown Affair. We're going to talk about that later Mm -hmm. in the year, along with Lion in Winter. Um, I have seen those three. I haven't seen The Fox or The Shoes of the Fisherman, but all of these composers I really like. I am thrilled that Goldsmith got nominated for *Planet of the Apes*. I wouldn't take that out. I, *Line in Winter*, I it's a brilliant score. I, I think it deserved to win. *Thomas Crown Affair*, I would leave in. Um, you think this is too? This is like too standard, um, you know, dark
0: jazz to to stand up against some of those scores. I, because I would I would swap
1: this one out with *Planet of the Apes* in terms of Goldsmith score. Wow. Well, I I think that it's not uh, at the time. Planet of the Apes was such a unique original score that um, yeah. it was nominated because it it was such a uh, uh the wow factor of that's that's the, some of the most crazy music. Yeah. And that's fair. to that end I, I I think it deserves the recognition. But you're right. This is the more listenable of the two. mm mm-hmm. Mhm so i can see your point
0: well it's disappointing my sense is that this movie was probably shunned not because of any specific performances but because of its its overall package that it it pushed on some norms uh in potentially some uncomfortable ways yeah
1: i think the genre too i I think there are films that just don't get the recognition because it's a genre movie and i think that's something that's always been going on so but then again planet of the apes nomination for best score so how to do the box office (laughs) 20th Century Fox gave Douglas $4.5 million to make his movie, which is about $31 million in today's dollars. Sinatra's film was released May 28, 1968, opposite the Yule Brenner, charles Bronson-Robert Mitchin vehicle, Via Rides, and the counterculture cult classic, Wild in the Streets. The movie did well at the box office, coming in at the, the 20th spot of the films of 1968, bringing in $6.5 million or just under $45 million in today's dollars. That leaves the movie with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $122,000. That surprises me that it even came in in the top 20. It was surprisingly popular. I, I don't know if it's because the book was so popular or what, but this, from everything I read, it was a big box office success, and people really enjoyed it. It could be this was a, uh, you know, a lot of conversations of different types happening in the late 60s. And uh, I think it allowed, this was a film that allowed more uh, variety of people to go to the movies and and feel like they were seeing something that represented something other than what they were getting in the 50s.
0: I love it. And I love it so much, I think we should rank it.
1: I do too. Head over to flickchart.com
0: slash the next reel and you will see our list of all of the movies we have talked about on this show. Or you can swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flickchart, and you'll be taken straight to this movie, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up
1: to ours, Andy. First up, we have the detective or Fat City. The detective. That's actually a great pairing. Yes. Uh, make like a great double feature. <laughs> Absolutely, it would. <laughs> um, the detective also, though. Uh, the detective or Seven Samurai. Oh, I've got to go. Seven Samurai. I right know. All
0: right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the mat with it. And we'll just see. We'll just see what happens. Wow, okay. I'm not going to be hurt. Anyway, I'm not either. There's, I don't, it's just, just a thought experiment <laughs> that will forever <laughs> okay. determine our rankings of all the films forever. And ever <laughs> it may be end. a little hurt. If you it may be a little hurt. That's we'll okay. See. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. Yeah. One, One, two, two three. three. Scissors. scissors. Rock. Rock. Scissors. Rock. All right. Clearly, the fates were in your corner, and that's okay. I feel
1: good about that. And that's okay. Yeah. The Detective or Mother?
0: Uh, the Detective. I'm going to go with The Detective.
1: I'm going to go with Mother on this one. You can have it. That's good. At least I made
0: my position known.
1: I I think they're incredibly strong films in both yeah. cases. Yeah. The Detective or Inside Man? I don't know. I feel like I need a I need you to make a case. Well, The Detective is a film I will be thinking about more. Inside Man is an absolutely fun ride. If I if, it's, if it boils down to what I'm going to put on first, I'm going to say Inside Man.
0: I think I'm Inside Man. Okay, let's do it. Inside Man.
1: <laughs> That's it forever. The Detective or High Noon? Probably the Detective. Yeah, there was a day I would... Uh, this is one that'll fluctuate on the day. Yeah, um, the Detective yeah. on this one. The detective or adaptation?
0: <laughs> okay, maybe it's just my initial reaction to you saying the words "adaptation" that we haven't talked about it in some time. I am adaptation.
1: <laughs> I am absolutely yeah. Great movie, The Detective or The Departed? Oh, The Detective. <laughs> yeah, I'll say, oh, man, I, I I really want to revisit The de- Departed because I'm I keep wondering if I'm. If my memory of it uh, is too sullied now. Possibly. Although, you
0: know, I I definitely, I had to rank it against Infernal Affairs and um, Infernal Affairs takes it for me on that one, but uh, definitely The
1: Detective over The Departed. The Detective or M. I'm going to go with M. Uh, Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that lands The Detective at 171 on our chart. 171 out of 371, which is about 54%. Uh it's in the top half but it's uh not by much.
0: I'm I'm disappointed. That feels low to me. Although in my own ranking I ended up at 326 out of 1039 uh which comes in at about 69% and that also feels low to me. I it makes me think something is broken on uh, in movies.
1: Yeah, I was uh, uh struggling also with 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 my ranking but mine landed at 1006 out of 4041 which is Seventy five percent. So that means, you know, on Letterboxd, I should be giving it four stars, which is what I'm giving it.
0: That is interesting for me. It The algorithm says that I should be giving it three and a half. I uh, uh, respectfully disagree with the algorithm and I'm going to go with four solid stars and a like on Letterboxd 2.
1: Absolutely with a like. It was uh, such a delight watching this movie. And I I don't think it's only because it's on the heels of Coogan's Bluff, which is
0: let's just the say it was, a, it was a hell
1: of a setup. It really was, but I just I was so thrilled that this was a film that I had heard of, but I I knew nothing about, and I walk into it, and it just it I it felt so fresh and surprising, and I'm so happy that I have now seen this film. Totally agree, uh, this was terrific, and now. Uh, we're getting
0: close to the end of our big 1968 crime series. Where do we go from here?
1: Yeah, we are going to be, this is going to be an interesting finale to this series. We're going to be ending it with a uh, much different type of film. Uh, We're jumping over to Italy and we're looking at danger diabolic directed by Mario Bava. This is uh, the action crime comedy uh let's hope it does better than the coogan's bluff action, <laughs> action crime, crime comedy, comedy. <laughs> but it's it's yeah it's the italian uh film that uh it's i i've heard it's a crazy film i'm looking forward to checking it out and seeing what this uh this wacky movie's all about so that is the next film that we're going to be looking at
0: I can't wait to do it because, you know, the, the, uh, I've, I have heard Italians have really a corner of the market of, uh, of all three of those things, action, crime, and comedy. Uh, put them together, <laughs> I, just, I just I feel like something really special is going to come out of it.
1: Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on Patreon.com slash The and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee.
0: We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head to head in our weekly challenge
1: in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too. If you support us at different levels, just head over to Patreon.com slash The Next You can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at TheNextReal.com. Um. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Next Reel.
0: And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord server for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or over on the website.
1: The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter. And thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to this show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud. Cloud page When the movie ends, our conversation begins Amazon giveth handy as amazon
0: sometimes doeth sometimes sometimes they doeth uh it, sometimes they do it, it, in this case i i will say i'm impressed to see that there are no one star reviews yeah uh but we do have a couple of two star reviews uh one that is is i, I actually think it's quite good so i'm not going to read it well, I, I think they meant
1: to put it in the higher ratings, but they yeah. might have gotten their stars a little <laughs> right. confused.
0: Right, right. Uh, it, it, and it's quite verbose and thorough. And really, you just listen to the show. Who are we kidding? You, you got everything you need out of that. But I would <laughs> like to share uh, this two star review uh, from Bernadette uh, back in 2010. I, it, it's interesting. Uh, she says with the two stars, my husband said that the detective was not as good as Lady in Cement, nor Tony Rome." Oh my! And it's you know that's it, and it's it's fine, um. But the comments really are are really uh, what's <laughs> what's so perfect, <laughs> dude. I mean, uh, there are a couple, uh, and and they they all really have kind of the same uh, bent as J. E. Bloomer, who replies, "Yes, it's a pity that husbands wield such raw power over the cinematic sensibilities of wives."
1: I love that, Bloomer. Thank you for that. That's so good. (laughs) Well, I've got a three-star. You you took the good two-star. Three stars by Christine C., who says, No heroes. In most films that I view, I prefer someone to cheer for, and this movie does not go along with that idea. It's average in all other areas. Too bad. Oh, Great cast. No heroes. Christine well, needs a hero.
0: There's no heroes
1: she, in the big, dark, dirty world. Christine, wake up. Well, and she clearly has not listened to enough Tina Turner. Because we don't need another. She doesn't hero. even need a hero.
0: That's right. <laughs> you know why, Christine? Because the heroes are dead. All the heroes are dead. It's 1968. Get a binky. <sighs>